Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. From the Shoah to the Nakba to the continuing and escalating violence and terror both in Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territories, this wound of humanity is yet to heal. Netanyahu, the political Lazarus, is back in power and has intensified his criminal theft of Palestinian land and assault on the Palestinian people directly through the IDF and indirectly through engendering a climate of impunity for settler violence. Yesh Din, an Israeli human rights organization, reported that over 80% of complaints of settler violence by Palestinians to police were not investigated at all, and out of the 20% that were, 93% resulted in no indictment. In Israel, Netanyahu is focused on eviscerating Israeli democracy by amputating judicial independence. This is in no small part due to the fact that he is still to account for his corruption, bribery and breach of trust charges, a conflict of interest that the Israeli Attorney General, Galiba Harav Miara, aptly noted, stating that the laws will bring serious damage to democracy, the independence of the judiciary and civil rights. Although massive and unprecedented protests in Israel have delayed the law's reading to the next Knesset session, Netanyahu is undeterred in his stampede. He's also actively working on the international front to conflate criticism of his criminal regime with anti-Semitism, falsely painting himself as the unelected representative of the entire Jewish people. Criticizing illegal settlements, the systemic violence against Palestinian people, systemic administrative detention and use of military courts, including for children, denial of travel aboard for necessary medical treatment and the construction and enforcement of an apartheid regime, the crimes against humanity that the Palestinian people endure is not anti-Semitism, but criticism of cruel government policies that are also illegal under international law. The conflation is not only false, but diverts and deflects from actual anti-Semitism, which from vandalism to violence, including shootings and kidnappings at synagogues, is deploringly very real and on the rise around the world and within the US. In the United States, there is increasing opposition to advocacy and speech for Palestinian rights. Palestine Legal and the Center for Constitutional Rights have written a detailed report, which you can find on this episode's page, documenting the pressure, coercion, and punitive measures aimed at students and academics that speak out on behalf of Palestinian rights. 35 states have enacted certifications for contractors to certify they will not boycott Israel, originally drafted by the pay-to-play bill mill ALEC, which allies the religious right and corporate greed in an arsenal against democracy. The phrase to not boycott Israel is constitutionally vague and is content-based and thus violates the First Amendment. Numerous Jewish organizations, including J Street and Thrua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, advocate against these laws and the danger of conflating criticism of the Israeli government with anti-Semitism. Boycotts are visceral to our democracy. Our country was founded on the boycott of British tea. The British abolitionist movement relied heavily on the boycott of imported slave-grown sugar, the civil rights movement utilized the boycott of segregated transport and white-owned businesses. Gandhi utilized the boycott of British goods to gain Indian independence. The international community banded together and boycotted the South African apartheid regime. Whatever you may think of BDS, it's another thing entirely to limit the use of the boycott as a protest measure. As if we're seeing the poem First They Came reenacted, a number of states have enacted copycat laws requiring their contractors to certify that they don't and will not boycott fossil fuel companies or even boycott any industry for any reason. For instance, 
weapons manufacturers. Unsurprisingly, it's ALEC that has also drafted this model legislation of constitutional carnage. I spoke to Maria LaHood, the Deputy Legal Director at the Centre for Constitutional Rights, which since 1966 has been utilising litigation and advocacy to combat oppressive systems of power, structural discrimination and social inequities. Maria litigates corporate abuse, government overreach and protects Palestinian human rights defenders who are being targeted for their speech. Welcome to Gravity, Maria. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. So the Palestinian people have for generations since the Nakba been persecuted, subjected to collective punishment, have been living under an apartheid regime and have had their human rights continuously violated for which the entire international community, even all the Arab states, uh, are complicit in. Increasingly, the American public, particularly academics and students, have been drawing attention to this pernicious plight. Yet, even though we purportedly live in a democracy and supposedly have enshrined the First Amendment, students and academics alike have been stifled in discussing these gross human rights violations and crimes against humanity that are occurring in the OPT or the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Can you tell our audience about the Palestine exception to free speech and the restrictions and penalties that students and academics face in engaging in debate? Yes, that's right. For nearly 75 years, Israel has occupied and annexed Palestinian land, dominating and oppressing the Palestinian people while the international community enables it, especially the United States. Israel's current right-wing government is escalating and inciting attacks on Palestinians, but the oppression has been constant. But Palestinians have continued to resist. So Israel has intensified its crackdown on civil society that dares expose or challenge its crimes. Um, It's designated several NGOs in Palestine terrorists, and these are groups that have been advancing human rights for decades under severe repression, which is exactly why Israel is escalating its efforts to crush them by trying to criminalize their advocacy and isolate them from support. So Israel's repression and silencing of Palestinians in Palestine cascades out to the diaspora and to the larger movement for Palestinian liberation. Um, In 2005, Palestinian civil society called for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions until Israel complies with international law. And the movement to support Palestinian freedom continues to grow in the U.S. But as it does, so does the repression against it. Israel has declared that BDS is the biggest threat it faces. It spent hundreds of millions of dollars to try to quell BDS and criticism of itself. And it's established and it funds an international legal network to do that, including working with uh, groups in the U.S. So the suppression in the U.S. is widespread. In 2015, CCR and Palestine Legal issued a report on the Palestine exception to free speech Um, describing what happens and and who's responsible. So people who speak out for Palestinian freedom are routinely smeared as anti-Semitic or as supporting terrorism. They're disciplined in their schools or they're punished for advocating for Palestinian rights. And sometimes they're sued and sometimes they're even fired from their jobs. They get trolled, they get blacklisted, they're attacked. They are reported to their schools and their employers and sometimes law enforcement. 
Palestine Legal, who CCR works with closely um, and who CCR helped found a decade ago, has responded to more than 2,200 incidents of suppression in the United States. And that's just really the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And, you know, these false accusations um, and smears, they don't only harm Palestinians and their supporters, but they undermine the fight against actual anti-Semitism. So, you know, conflating support for Palestinian liberation with hostility toward Jewish people distracts from the struggle for equality for everyone and against all bigotry, as if it's a zero-sum game and that someone must dominate or oppress, when in reality, none of us is free until all of us are free. I very much agree with that statement. Eugene Debs said that as long as there's a person in jail, none of us are free. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, there is unfortunately uh, increasing anti-Semitism, actual anti-Semitism throughout the world and in the United States, as well as increasing oppression against the Palestinian people. So mm-hmm. the two issues, if we support human rights, we support everybody's human rights. Exactly. So in in terms of uh, stifling free speech, and there are many ways that this is occurring, but one way seems to be these certification schemes that are in place, I think, in 33 states now. So there's state laws prohibiting Mm -hmm. the boycott of Israel by state contractors and employees. And this appears a direct attempt to chill speech against the First Amendment. Not only is the definition really ambiguous and I think constitutionally vague because I don't, if I read, I will not boycott Israel, I don't actually know what that means. For me, I, I, it's yeah. just so, what does that even mean? Um, right. And, and right. also mm-hmm. it seems to strike at the very heart of the First Amendment because it seems to be facially content-based, that the government is trying to coerce mm-hmm. you into a political opinion by signing this certification. Now, you filed amicus briefs in three circuits, the 5th, the 8th, and the 9th, on essentially the same boycott prohibitions. Can you tell our audience mm-hmm. more about these prohibitions and how they've proliferated and chilled speech in these three cases? Yeah, absolutely. I think it might even be 34 states in the U.S. that have passed anti-boycott laws related to Israel at this point. Um, And they vary somewhat, but generally they prohibit the state from contracting with someone or some entity that boycotts Israel. And in some states, they prohibit investing in them. I don't know of any, I don't think any actually prohibit employees um, from boycotting. I think it's just contractors. Um, But many of, you know, the states require state contractors to certify that they won't boycott Israel. Some even have a blacklist of entities who do boycott. Um, And in some states like New York, where movements have successfully stopped the legislature from passing an anti-BDS law, the governor, in this case it was Cuomo, signed an executive order to basically do the same thing. Um, So how did they proliferate? Well, Israel had the first anti-BDS law, basically, and Netanyahu has acknowledged that Israel promoted these laws in the U.S., Um, The American Jewish Congress got all 50 governors to join a Governors Against BDS campaign condemning BDS and supporting Israel. And Illinois was the first um, state to pass one of these laws in 2015, which the Jewish United Fund took credit for. And then ALEC developed and disseminated model legislation. 
there was actually a bill in, in Congress that tried to criminalize boycotts of Israel with 20-year sentences, but that, that did not pass. Um, so as we know, as you said, political boycotts are a nonviolent, time-honored tactic that demand basic human rights like equality. And these boycotts are protected by the First Amendment, which was confirmed in the landmark case NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware which stem from a civil rights boycott in Mississippi in the 60s. So there have been several cases challenging these state anti-boycott laws brought separately by the ACLU and CARE, which is the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Um, I would highly recommend the film Boycott. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's now on, it's available for streaming, which follows three of these state contractors who refused to certify that they wouldn't boycott Israel and sued to challenge the laws. And they all had you know, different reasons, but they all refuse to sign. So it follows Bahia Maui, who's a Palestinian-American speech pathologist who works in Texas public schools. Um, Alan Leverett, who is the publisher of the Arkansas Times, who used to contract with Arkansas to advertise in his paper. And Mick Jordahl, who's an attorney in Arizona, who provides legal services to incarcerated people. And basically 80% of his income was dependent on that. So... None of, them want, none of them would certify that they would boycott Israel, so they sued in their states. And, um, you know, Alan Leverett was clear that he takes no position, that his newspaper takes no position on boycotts, but he's not going to sign some certification that abridges his free speech. And what does this have to do with him? You know, so TCR and Palestine Legal submitted amicus briefs in each of these cases talking about how boycotts to advance Palestinian rights fall within the historic tradition of constitutionally protected boycotts and how these laws are part of a broader effort to suppress growing advocacy in support of Palestinian rights. So several of the federal district courts have applied Claiborne um, to block these anti-boycott laws under the First Amendment. But then what happened oftentimes is the legislatures subsequently amended the law to exempt the plaintiffs who sued and moot the cases before the appellate courts could address the merits. So in Texas, for example, Bahia Maui won, and the court blocked the law, and then Texas amended the law to say, okay, it only applies to companies with, um, or it doesn't, to exclude companies with less than 10 full-time employees and contracts under $100,000. So the law no longer applied to Bahia, and her case was moot. So then in Texas, a&R Engineering, whose owner is also Palestinian-American, refused to sign the certification. And a judge again enjoined the law, and that case is currently on appeal in the Fifth Circuit. Um, there's another, CARES also won a case challenging Georgia's anti-BDS law, which is on appeal in the Eleventh Circuit. Um, but then in the Arkansas Times case, the full Eighth Circuit upheld Arkansas's anti-boycott law, finding that it only prohibits commercial, non-expressive conduct. So the decision to boycott isn't inherently expressive because it would have to be explained. So it's not protected by the First Amendment. Um, and it found the First Amendment protects speech or association promoting a boycott, but not the purchasing decisions of a boycott, which directly contradicts Claiborne. In Claiborne, it was, you know, the boycott itself is protected First Amendment activity. So 
the Supreme Court unfortunately declined to hear the Eighth Circuit case. So we'll have to wait for these other circuit decisions to come out and then hopefully the Supreme Court will hear one of those cases. Yeah, I was extremely disappointed that the Supreme Court refused review, even though I suppose refusing review is better than um, a terrible decision that (laughs) agrees with the Eighth Circuit. But this country was founded on a boycott, right? This country was founded on the boycott. As you mentioned, the civil rights movement started with boycotts and really gained steam with boycotts. (laughs) Yeah, in in February when the Supreme Court... uh, Uh, denied review, uh, children across this country were learning about the Montgomery bus boycott (laughs) and how important Mm -hmm. boycotts are and how we have the First Amendment. And isn't that great that it protects boycotts? And the, the thing is, this is definitely political and therefore expressive conduct. I'm not understanding how they're saying this is just economic regulation. I do understand that that Texas, Arkansas, and Arizona had all raised arguments that the certification had nothing to do with expressive conduct, and it was merely regulating economics. And actually, that in itself is a very strange and ironic argument for them to make mm-hmm. because they purport to be laissez-faire economies, right? They don't really mm-hmm. want to regulate mm-hmm. business, and right. then here they right. are trying to... Yeah, Yeah, uh, say that, um, yeah, they want to regulate your purchasing decisions. So, and even that film that you were talking about, which is an excellent film, um, that uh, I believe that, um, is it Alan? The um, from Arkansas, Leverett, yeah, yeah, Alan Leverett. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He when he said, "Oh, you know, I grew up conservative, but who are these conservatives that want to enter your bedroom and control everything right. about your life?" Like, right. the, I thought right. the whole point exactly. was the government was meant to be, you know, limited. Um, so, oh, yeah. so where do we where do we stand? I mean, how how do we how does a court say that something so expressive as deciding to you oh. know throw tea away and because you don't have any representation, mm-hmm. is somehow now um, nothing to do with expressive conduct. Right. It doesn't, I mean, it, it's hard to understand because, frankly, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Eighth Circuit decision found almost laughably that the legislature was concerned about the commercial viability of companies that don't do business with Israel and how that could impact the state's finances and that, you know, companies that don't have access to Israelis innova- Israel's innovations are too risky for investment or contracting with, which is, I mean, it's a joke. And of course, it's clear and legislature legislators often talk openly about how really all they want to do is target political boycotts of Israel to, to show their support for Israel and to send the message that those boycotts are unacceptable in the U.S. It's just, it's a political attack. And the Supreme Court in Claiborne found that peaceful political boycotts to bring about political, social, and economic change are protected by the First Amendment. So, and, you know, in, in the 60s, you know, the the boycotts were, were similar to those now in that they seek to vindicate rights of racial equality and freedom. And Claiborne didn't distinguish between the actual boycott and all the expressive conduct that relates to a boycott. It said boycotts are protected. The fundamental right to boycott, to collectively protest and band together toward a common goal is an exercise of core First Amendment rights of assembly, association, expression, and petitioning the government for redress of grievances. So it's really, you know, and that's 
the First Amendment also prohibits the government from abridging our freedom of speech, including from imposing unconstitutional conditions that chill or deter speech. Government benefits, like a contract, can't be contingent on endorsing a particular message or agreeing not to engage in protected speech. Under the First Amendment, laws that restrict expression because of its content or viewpoint are subject to the highest level of scrutiny. Mm. So I agree that it's better for the Supreme Court to not hear the case. I don't, hopefully it didn't hear the case because it was not inclined to, you know, decide the issue, but oftentimes the Supreme Court will wait until there's actually a circuit split. So when other courts hopefully decide, yes, of course, this this boycott is protected by the First Amendment, then hopefully the Supreme Court will weigh in and consistently with Claiborne and so many years, decades of precedent. Yeah, decide that this is ridiculous yeah. and that boycotts are yeah. protected by the First Amendment and actually the very heart of the First Amendment. And this is the thing that is concerning. There are multiple issues that we're discussing today, but mm-hmm. the Palestinian issue, obviously it is in itself problematic, but yeah. in many ways we're really talking about um, the very part of our democracy. Without free speech and informed debate, we don't have a democracy. Speech on the debate of Palestinian rights, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine of our democracy. Because Mm -hmm. if we can't talk Mm -hmm. about a particular subject because it's too purportedly divisive, uh, then what can we do? When we look at ALEC, which uh, is this pay-to-play bill mill that's bridging the religious right and corporate greed in ways that are really detrimental to our democracy. They, as you mentioned, drafted the prohibition of the Israel boycott, but now they've already drafted certifications against, um, like they've expanded this boycott to include fossil fuels. So now we have Mm -hmm. in Texas Mm -hmm. and other states, the Energy Elimination Discrimination Act, as if fossil fuel companies now need protection. Right. And then now they have the Eliminate Political Boycotts Act. Now, that means that maybe if we want to boycott weapons manufacturers or I don't even know what, but the point is we should decide with our purchasing power what we want to buy and how. And for instance, if we do not want to have um, to, if we don't want to support fossil fuel companies that are ruining our planet, why are we now told that we cannot do that? For instance, we can't yeah. do impact investment and other things. That's why I think it's kind of the canary in the coal mine here. You know, they started with something that they had a lot of broad political support on. And, and if they if these circuit courts and if the Supreme Court says, yes, you can't boycott, then they'll expand to other things as they're already doing. Yeah, they have. Since the anti-boycott laws have proliferated, legislators use them as templates just to attack other movements and political boycotts. So, like you said, fossil fuels and firearm industries. So, Texas passed an anti-boycott law nearly identical, just created a blacklist of companies that boycott energy companies and prohibits contracting with them or investing them and requires a certification. And it also passed another law that prohibits contracts with companies that discriminate against the firearm and ammunition industries. Utah's just trying to amend its anti-BDS law to cover other political issues. So several states have passed the ALEC model law to shield big oil from from share sell-offs 
and and other measures to protect the fossil fuel industry's role in the climate crisis. And this is, it has no end. I mean, they're Alex now pushing models of legislation that would require government entities to include a cause in contracts, saying that businesses will pledge not to engage in any economic boycotts in general. Um, I mean, the federal government just tried to pass an anti-ESG bill that President Biden exercised his first veto on. Congress passed the bill to prevent fund managers from considering any environmental, social, or governance factors when investing funds. So Republicans wanted to prevent investment funds from considering how a company's business impacts climate and determining whether it's a good investment. I mean, why invest in anything without considering its sustainability over the long term? Um, So it's, you know, and there's also, I mean, we didn't, we haven't talked about the, there's, in addition to the anti-boycott laws, several states have also passed laws this is separate, but defining anti-Semitism to include political criticism of Israel. And, you know, these laws, I mean, I can, I can explain more about those. I guess Florida's law, for example, revises its anti-discrimination law that applies to public schools to add a definition of anti-Semitism that incorporates the IRA definition, which is, you know, has examples of anti-Semitism as it relates to Israel saying it's anti-Semitic to apply double standards to Israel um, or to claim the state of Israel as racist. So now people in schools are afraid about afraid to talk about Israel to, to avoid the, the anti-discrimination law. And, and that law paved the way for, for similar laws. So Florida now has a Stop Woke Act that prohibits <laughs> teaching critical race theory in K-12 schools and Florida banned high school students from enrolling in AP courses on African-American history. So, you know, talking about systemic racism is considered discriminatory. It's just, it's truly backwards. And, you know, these are attacks on progressive social change and social movements. And they're, you know, their attempts to quash speech, to resist or to restrict educational curricula, to ban books. So black studies are under attack and Middle East studies are under attack and trans people are under attack. Anything that threatens the status quo, that threatens white supremacy and cis heteropatriarchy. Um, mm. and, and many states have adopted these kinds of measures um, that ban just teaching, teaching in a framework that analyzes race, gender and power. Um, they basically treat one political perspective, the one based on you know, equality and history is off limits. And, and, you know, we see this suppression of critical perspectives really in, you know, authoritarianism yeah. and, you know, trying to silence and criminalize ideas that you don't like. And the biggest problem is that, you know, with these laws is the chill they cause and the climate of fear and the impact of them goes way beyond the individuals who are targeted. So really the most important thing is for people not to be chilled or silenced and to, and to use these laws and attacks as opportunities to discuss the underlying issue, to change the narrative, you know? Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's harrowing. Like you said, it seems that there's a real movement to curb our freedom of speech, to curb uh, our freedom of association, the very things that um, are visceral to a democracy. And if we lose it, we do have authoritarianism, particularly teaching children just a narrow um, Mm -hmm. and incorrect uh, viewpoint. And one of the things that I've noticed is these critical infrastructure laws that have um, proliferated Mm -hmm. as well, and that's to uh, protect uh, energy companies, but in ways that I believe actually CCR was involved in a case uh, in Louisiana where uh, you had a protest on private land with the owner's permission, and the law in Louisiana says that if you protest near a pipeline and there are pipelines everywhere that crisscross mm-hmm. underground so you have no idea where these pipelines are that you could go to prison for I don't know five years or something ridiculous and, and right, so right. you are on somebody's private land with their permission protesting fossil fuels and um, and leakage into uh, the environment from pipelines and suddenly you can face five years in jail because, oh, did you not know there's this law that says you basically can't protest anything in this state next to an oil pipeline and they're everywhere and gotcha. Right, 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 <laughs> ah! right, right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, luckily those, you know, they, and they were, crimin- the protesters were criminally charged and that was also an ALEC-inspired, you know, law basically or amendment to the to the critical infrastructure law but um you know the the prosecutor ended up rejecting the criminal charges so i mean there had been i think there were 16 protesters and a journalist who had been charged with felonies Mm. um for for those protests yeah Oh, that's uh, it's very harrowing. But um, going back to uh, the stifling of speech mm-hmm. uh, with a particular focus on um, Palestinian rights um, and the rights of people that uh, want to express support for Palestinian human rights in the U.S., seems that um, one tactic of stifling is public discourse of critiquing the Israeli government um, a meritless slap suits or um, strategic litigation against public participation suits. Uh, and you mm-hmm. were counsel in a suit representing board members of the Olympia Co-op that were sued for what appears their participation in a majority decision to join in the boycott against Israeli policies towards Palestinians. And this, I mean, I don't, this case went on for years. <laughs> Can you tell us more yeah, about the issues years, in Davis versus years. Cox? <laughs> um so, yeah, the Olympia Food Co-op um, was, I think, the first business in the U.S. to boycott Israeli goods. That was in 2010. Um, Rachel Corey, if, you know, I don't know if people are familiar, but was a 23-year-old um, uh, student when she went to Gaza with the International Solidarity Movement. And she stood in front of the Nasrallah home to protect it from demolition while they were inside and 20 years ago, an IDF soldier in a Caterpillar bulldozer ran her down and backed over her, killing her. And it was a, you know, quite a global moment. Um, so she was from Olympia and her, she went to Evergreen College there and her parents still lived there. And Olympia formed a sister city relationship with Rafa and Gaza, where she was. Um, and so the food co-op, which, you know, has is a nonprofit. It has a long history of doing social justice work, including having adopted various boycotts, uh, voted by consensus, the board did, to, to boycott Israeli goods as well. 
And then a few of the 22,000 co-op members sued the 16 board members, the ones who made the decision and the ones who were in office when the suit was filed. And they sued for personal damages against the volunteer board members, and they sued to end the boycott, claiming that the board members exceeded their authority and breached their fiduciary duties. So couching it in terms of corporate governance things, but with a clear point of ending the boycott. Um, And this is a case where we actually see Israel's direct influence. There was, you know, six months before the case was filed, the Israeli consul general to the Pacific Northwest went from San Francisco to Olympia, Washington to meet with Stand With Us. You know, this is one of the Israel apologist groups in the U.S. who seek to suppress advocacy for Palestinian rights, met with Stand With Us, met with the plaintiff's attorneys, and met with potential plaintiffs. And Stand With Us, you know, stated that the case was actually a byproduct of its partnership with the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And when, you know, a journalist asked the then Deputy Foreign Minister about it, he confirmed, yes, the ministry used Stand With Us to amplify its power. So it's really, this was, you know, when they were a little bit more, I mean, they're still open about it. You know, they're still open about about it. But um, so we filed what's called an anti-slap motion on behalf of the board members um, with our co-counsel at Davis Wright and Shemaine. SLAP is a strategic lawsuit against public participation, and about half the states in the country have anti-SLAP laws to deter the abusive use of courts to chill free speech. Um, so basically, it makes it easier to dismiss meritless, meritless cases that target protected speech at the beginning, and most of them also require plaintiffs to pay attorney's fees if they lose. So it's a disincentive to file meritless cases just to silence people. Um, So the court dismissed the complaint as a slap and awarded the board members attorney's fees and statutory damages. But then the case went on appeal. We went on appeal and then it went up to the Washington Supreme Court, which struck down the state's anti-slap law. So the case was sent back to Superior Court and then the case went to discovery, which is, you know, when the when the parties can depose each other, when they can ask for production of documents. And that was one of the purposes of this harassing lawsuit was just to subject, you know, our clients to harassing discovery. So basically they said, turn over all your documents about a boycott of Israel. So every mass email you've ever gotten, every social media post, every journal or calendar entry, any of that, you have to, you know, produce it to us. Um, and I mean, the good thing about discovery is that it goes both ways. So, you know, we asked them for documents and they produced documents that were pretty revealing. Um, you know, one of them was how they were celebrating that their lawsuit had successfully discouraged other co-ops from taking similar measures and, you know, thanking Stand With Us for providing the legal team and raising the money. Um, so... It was really, you know, a case was finally dismissed once and for all in 2020, which was 10 years after the co-op passed the boycott. Um, And Washington state has thankfully passed a new anti-slap law. But it's really a, a, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale for some. And it's a success story 
um, for many, which is even if, even if you're sued in a meritless lawsuit, you know, there are people there to represent you and, you know, keep using your voice to speak out for, for human rights. Yeah. I, and it's not just in, unfortunately, this uh, matter that dragged on, but you've been counsel on many matters where defendants mm-hmm. have been dragged into years of suits. Mm-hmm. There's this case, Bronner, um, in which four American Studies Association members filed putative corporate governance action claiming ultra vires yeah. and breach of fiduciary duties by directors, but really... Um, obviously a slap suit. But the thing is, it's it seems you had to fight in the federal court and in local courts mm-hmm. for years and yeah. years um, before it got dismissed. I mean, what was that all about? <laughs> so it's, it was really similar. It was basically a copycat case of the co-op case. Um, we, you know, the American Studies Association, which is an association of faculty, decided... Um, to pass a resolution in 2013 endorsing the call to boycott Israeli academic institutions. Um, so when they passed that, it really struck a nerve. I mean, other other associations had actually passed boycotts, but they were smaller and less well-known. So legislatures around the country proposed bills to take away state funding from colleges if they use their state funds for any academic organization that issued a statement advocating a boycott of Israel. The legislation did not pass, but then four members of the ASA who were represented by the Brandeis Center sued the ASA and individual members in federal court saying, yes, same thing. They acted outside their authority. They breached their fiduciary duties. Um, We didn't get involved until... 2018, um, when they also sued Stephen Salida, who we represent. And he um, had just advocated for the boycott as a member of US ACBI, the US Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. And then he joined the ASA board after the boycott had been passed. So plaintiffs brought claims against him purely for his advocacy. And because of the fact that the ASA used funds to defend itself against plaintiff's own litigation. <laughs> so another really bizarre, you know, meritless case. But in federal court, in D.C. at least, the, the, the Anti-SLAPP Act doesn't apply. In some federal courts around the country, you know, they will apply the state's anti-SLAPP law. But so the you know the case went on for three years. There was discovery, and then finally the federal court dismissed it because plaintiffs hadn't alleged enough damages to be in federal court. So then plaintiffs brought the same case in D.C. Superior Court, where the Anti-SLAPP Act applies. So we moved to dismiss the case under the Anti-SLAPP Act, and the court dismissed some of the claims, but not under the Anti-SLAPP Act. So we appealed, we went up to the the highest court in DC, which is the Court of Appeals. They reversed and sent it back down. We rebriefed the issue and we just recently won. So the court dismissed all the claims, most of them under the Anti-SLAPP Act. Um, We've moved for attorney's fees and plaintiffs are appealing the decision. So this is another one, stay tuned, you know, Unclear how much longer it will last. (laughs) Yeah, these are arduous cases. 
Yeah. That they probably do chill speech, right? Like you you said that um, in the Olympia matter, other co-ops decided just it wasn't worth it because you have to spend so mm-hmm. much time and money. And it's psychologically taxing. I think people might not understand yeah. how psychologically taxing litigation is. Even if you do have pro bono yeah. counsel, you still expend a lot of time and a lot of energy on uh, litigation. Now, Another case that also seems to be um, essentially a slap suit in Masquerade. You were counsel for the Campaign for Palestinian Rights, which was sued by the Jewish National Fund uh, for allegedly aiding and abetting terrorism by supporting Hamas. But here's the thing that it's it's in the complaint. The support isn't, um, there's actually, it seems, no fact that points to express support of Hamas at all. And then the mm-hmm, only mm-hmm. support they point to actually is a fiscal sponsorship of and membership in the broad BDS movement, which then in mm-hmm. turn has many different members and then saying that some of these members include right. Hamas. Is that correct? Is that the tortured yeah. kind of connection? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is another one of those that's so so confusing because it's so attenuated. But But yes, we represent, and it is a slap, but unfortunately it's in federal court in D.C., so the slap law doesn't apply. But CCR represents the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, which is one of the oldest Palestine solidarity organizations in the U.S. And, you know, the case was brought by the Jewish National Fund and some U.S. nationals living in Israel, and they sued under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And I don't know if people are familiar with the Jewish National Fund, but, you know, it's a quasi-state entity that actually predates Israel in taking Palestinian land to be used solely for the benefit of Jewish people. So in this case, it was actually the International Legal Forum that claimed credit for it, which was funded by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel to to build out a legal network. So yeah, the great the JNF argues that the US campaign is liable for damage to land caused by incendiary kites and balloons that were launched from Gaza into Israel during the Great Return March because the U.S. campaign expressed support on social media for Palestinians' right to protest and their right to demand the right to return without being shot at and killed by Israel. So, you know, that was their expression of support for the Great Return March. And because they participated in a campaign, it's an advocacy organization, to stop the JNF from dispossessing Palestinians of their land. And then also because it served for a time as the U.S. fiscal sponsor for the Boycott National Committee, which is a coalition of Palestinian civil society that supports global BDS campaigns. And because one of the BNC members is another coalition made up of all the Palestinian parties, but one of those is Hamas. So, you know, they have made these obviously extremely attenuated allegations, but are really just targeting protected speech. So here the court dismissed the complaint as meritless, saying it hadn't met any of the elements of providing material support or aiding and abetting terrorism. Um, And then plaintiffs appealed to the D.C. Circuit. So we're currently waiting for a for an appellate decision on that. Right. You recently had oral argument in it, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in January. 
In January, yeah. okay. Yeah. The bench seemed pretty skeptical, I think, about the uh, yeah. the connections or actually what their argument yeah. even was. <laughs> right, which changed a bit in argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you like this one better? I'll go with this one then, Your Honor, <laughs> yes. yes. We're, that's what we were going for. Um, so a few yeah. years ago, Airbnb decided to embark on a policy of um, delisting properties throughout the world that were in disputed territories. Uh, And one of these territories included Israeli settlements in the OPT. Airbnb was then sued by American Israeli hosts who claimed that this was um, discriminatory and uh, you intervened on behalf of Palestinian Americans who were actually Mm -hmm. the historic owners of this land. And this seems to be the first time in U.S. litigation the Palestinians have ever directly challenged the taking of their land by settlers in the OPT. Can you tell our audience more about the issues in this matter? And uh, what I find interesting is that when you intervene, there was a quick stipulation by the parties to dismiss the mm-hmm. suit, and then your intervention uh, was found by the court to be moot. And um, yeah. and that's, I guess, settled that. But can you tell our audience more about the details of the case? Yes. So after Airbnb announced, you know, there had been a campaign against Airbnb to pull out of the illegal settlements in the West Bank. You know, they shouldn't be renting properties there. Um, So Airbnb announced that it would delist its West Bank settlement properties. Uh, And then it was faced with anti-BDS law blacklists. So, you know, states were saying, oh, you may not be able to operate because this sounds like a boycott, so you may not be able to operate in our state. Um, And then attorneys associated with Strat Hadeen sued Airbnb on behalf of U.S. settlers, claiming that Airbnb was discriminating against Jews and or Israelis under the Federal Fair Housing Act, the U.S. Fair Housing Act, because only Israeli Jews live in settlements. And if you, so if you withdraw from the settlements, you're discriminating against Jewish Israelis, which again, this is one of those that like you can't make it up um, <laughs> because obviously illegal settlements, you know, you can only live in them if you are Jewish Jewish Israelis. You can't, Palestinians aren't even permitted to enter them and they are built illegally on Palestinian land that Israel has occupied and, you know, is trying to annex. So you don't often get personal jurisdiction over settlers in U.S. court. So CCR moved to intervene on behalf of Palestinians who actually own the land or simply can't enter the settlements because they're Palestinian. And we brought counterclaims against the settlers for trespass on their land, for unjust enrichment from their land, and for displacing and persecuting them as violations of international law. So as you said, unfortunately, Airbnb capitulated and settled the case, announcing it would you know, it would allow listings in Israeli settlements. So our intervention was never heard. Um, And they still list properties and illegal settlements in the West Bank. So, you know, it's hard to know, was it the pressure of the law of the litigation against them? Was it the pressure of the anti-BDS laws, which, which would have had some, you know, impact, but anyway, who knows, but they capitulated and, and did not do the right thing in the end. Mm. Yeah, they had intense pressure not to do 
mm-hmm. the right thing. Moving back to students and um, mm-hmm. where does intellectual and public discourse most proliferate? And that would be universities. You would hope it'd be universities mm-hmm. too, right? Yes. Yes. But we yeah. have students and academics uh, facing a lot of pressure um, in just expressing their opinions about um, this uh, pernicious issue. And one case um, that you would counsel uh, in is Students for Justice for Palestine, um, or rather, sorry, individual plaintiffs that um, sought to register the Students for Justice for Palestine Club at Fordham. Um, and were denied. Now, the lower court um, decided that Fordham had made an arbitrary decision um, that they would not register because it would be polarizing because whether um, a club would be polarizing was not enumerated factor in any of Fordham's guidelines and not in its mission. And then the New York Court of Appeals had denied review, but perhaps the appellate court that disagreed with the lower court, the ratio was just lack of standing because the students had graduated. So where does that leave the status quo right now mm-hmm. in New York? And just looking at the broader picture, because correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that other universities and not just Fordham are trying to prevent discussion of divisive topics. And that I find extremely problematic because divisive topics are usually divisive for a reason. If we don't talk about things, how do we ever reach consensus? How do we ever move forward if we can't talk about things that are divisive? And in a democracy, you would expect that there are issues that are divisive and need public debate. Yeah, especially in universities, you know, silencing a perspective because others might disagree, squashes learning and growth and progress and definitely preserves the status quo. And, you know, considering and discussing different views is what universities are for. And it's actually part of Fordham's mission. So when students at Fordham wanted to apply to start an SJP, that was in 2015. I mean, there are a couple hundred of student clubs that support Palestinian freedom around the country, whether they're called SJP or not. Um, but they were given the runaround. And when the student government approved them, the dean vetoed the approval, saying, like you said, it would be polarizing and we just can't support a group that that advocates for a specific group against a specific country and that somehow conflicts with the mission of the university. So the students, you know, wanted to bring a case. And Fordham is a private university, obviously, and the First Amendment doesn't apply to private schools. But New York State has a special proceeding called Article 78 that permits you to challenge administrative decisions, whether it's a government agency or a corporation or an institution um, like a university, and says, you know, decisions can't be arbitrary. They have You have to comply with your own rules. They have to be rational. They have to be supported by the record. So we asked the court to order the university to recognize SJP. And the case took so long that, you know, even though we had had a sophomore petitioner when we first brought it, she was about to graduate even. So we added a new sophomore um, to join the case. Um, So the court, the lower court finally decided and they said Fordham can't, um, it's arbitrary and capricious for Fordham to make this decision. Nothing in Fordham's rules permit it to consider the arbitrary factors it did, like that it was polarizing or you criticized one nation, um, and basically affirm that universities should be centers of discussion of contested issues 
and that Fordham disapproved SJP in large part because it was criticizing Israel, not some other nation, essentially. So it was great. And the SJP operated at Fordham for a year without incident. Um, And then Fordham had appealed, even though SJP was operating. So Fordham appealed and the appellate court found, right, there's no standing because the sophomore who had joined the case wasn't part of the group that had originally applied to form an SJP. Even though Fordham the whole time was like, yeah, we will not allow an SJP. I mean, they were appealing the case. They were committed. Um, But the appellate court also said, and even if they did have standing, we think the decision was reasonable. So, Mm. and then the highest court, the New York Court of Appeals refused to hear the case. So, but you know, the students continued organizing as best they could outside of an official club and the movement on campuses continues to grow despite university efforts to suppress the speech. And And oftentimes universities are suppressing speech about Palestinian rights because they're getting pressure. Um, Again, back to, you know, this this specious argument that advocacy for Palestinian rights is anti-Semitic. So people, you know, file Title VI complaints or make complaints saying they were advocating for Palestinian rights. And that was that's hostile, you know, to to Jewish people. So, um, at, at public universities, obviously, the First Amendment does apply. Um, and although we have, you know, we see university suppression all the time, we haven't seen, I don't think, another university trying to to ban an SJP altogether. Um, and at least through this case, you know, universities knew that, the, that students wouldn't stand for that mm. um, and would challenge it. Um, not only is free speech important for a democracy, but information is important too. If we don't have access to information, right. we can't have an informed public debate. Um, so it's vital to democracy to have this information. And CCR has a thriving open records project. Can you tell us more about this project, um, the open records project, and in particular your work to obtain uh, information on U.S. actions as re- related to the storming of a peaceful flotilla carrying food and medicine to residents of Gaza um, against the Israeli mm-hmm. blockade. And by the way, I've noticed in the past few years that the Gaza Strip stripped the strip off its name, and now we refer to it as Gaza, and it's more euphemistic because the Gaza Strip is not really... <laughs> it used to be an open-air refugee camp, essentially, and now that's mm-hmm. the two-state mm-hmm. solution. So I wonder where that came from, but um, sorry, that's just uh, a segue. But um, this, uh, tragically, this very piece, like uh, food and medicine, that's what they were carrying, the the food and medicine on board. And um, the IDF shot an American um, multiple wounds to his chest and head. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem to be an accidental attack. No. So can you tell us more no. about this particular case and the Open Records Project in particular? Right, right. So, yeah, CCR has an open records project that that not only focuses on government transparency, which is critical, but also how to use powerful tools like the Freedom of Information Act to get records from government agencies to support movements and help seek accountability. Um So we have a FOIA basics guide for activists on our website and lots of other resources. And if, you know, so basically people in the U.S. can just 
request information from the government and they're entitled to it under the Freedom of Information Act. If they don't get it or the agencies aren't responding, you might need to sue in order to get the documents. So we had made requests related to Furkan Doan, who was an 18-year-old U.S. citizen, like you said, who was killed on the 2010 flotilla to Gaza. Israel intercepted the flotilla of ships in international waters, and commandos shot Furkan several times as he was filming them with a small video camera. And then he was laying on the ship face up, and they shot him in the face at point-blank range as he lay wounded. So it was an execution. Um, they also killed eight Turkish citizens. Um, so, you know, as you said, the flotilla, it was, they were carrying, um, I mean, they had probably more than 700 passengers from almost 40 countries and they were carrying humanitarian aid, including rebuilding supplies, you know, to rebuild from, from Israel's prior attacks on Gaza. Um, and they were going to deliver them to the people of Gaza. So, and, you know, Furhan wasn't the only U.S. citizen who was um, who was on it. There were 15 other U.S. citizens who participated, and five were on a U.S.-registered boat. Several of them were beaten, injured, and detained and had their property taken by Israel and never, never returned. So at that time, there was a, um, a U.N. Human Rights Council investigation, and they concluded, yes, the killing of Furhan and at least five others were illegal executions. So we brought a FOIA case seeking documents from, you know, eight U.S. agencies related to what the U.S. government knew about the flotilla attack and any actions that it took in response. You have, you know, a U.S. citizen killed, U.S. citizens injured on a U.S. registered boat. So what's the U.S. doing about this? And, you know, we know that the U.S. is Israel's biggest enabler, funder, protector. Um, so we got documents um, and they basically showed that, yeah, the U.S. engaged in diplomatic efforts to stymie the fact-finding mission of the U.N. Human Rights Council and to oppose the resolution that welcomed the mission's report. So, you know, doing everything it could to stifle accountability and justice, including for a U.S. citizen who was killed by Israel. Um, and, and the U.S., you know, it backed Israel's internal inquiry instead of supporting the international investigation. And, of course, that inquiry by Israel exonerated the soldiers and said, oh, well, their actions were legal. And, you know, they we don't whatever. That's what you know, that's what it, Israel does. Um, I mean, it's done, you know, as part of its longstanding occupation of Palestine. Israel has long targeted human rights defenders and, and journalists killed at least five U.S. citizens with utter impunity. I mean, the most recent um, was last year when it killed prominent Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhla in cold blood, mm. you know, while she was on assignment in Janine, wearing a protective helmet and a blue bulletproof vest that was clearly marked press. And then when after they shot her, they continued to fire live rounds toward other journalists and bystanders who tried to help Shireen. And then two days later, as the family and others were gathering for her funeral, Israeli forces attacked the procession, you know, beating the mourners and the pallbearers and basically, you know, almost causing her caskets fall to the ground. It wasn't enough to kill her. Um, they had to attack her funeral. And so in this, again, no accountability. 
Israel changed its story about Shireen's killing numerous times. First, it said she was killed by a Palestinian gunman, and then there was mounting evidence and videos. And finally, they acknowledged that there was a, quote, high possibility, unquote, that she was killed by the Israeli military. Um, And then it said, well, we don't know who exactly killed her, but we know it wasn't intentional. So we're not going to launch a criminal investigation. We're not going to hold anyone accountable. And we're not going to cooperate with any investigations. Mm. So, I mean, her family continues to call for accountability. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's this just, again, highlights the, the U.S.'s, it's more than complicity. It's really almost, it's collusion in, in Israel's. Yeah. And you've worked on a number of ATS cases, and one was on behalf of parents of Rachel Corey, who you've mentioned before, um, who used, who is from Olympia, um, and now she was also killed by the IDF. She was uh, wearing, I believe at the time, bright colors, obviously. You could see her. Uh, she was standing in front of a home, as you said, with the Palestinian family inside. I, I believe there are um, other plaintiffs in that case with her, surviving members of a family that were crushed to death at night uh, with no warning, a disabled man that was crushed to death because his family members were not allowed to help him leave his home, which he couldn't do by himself before the demolition of his home while he was inside. And um, these demolitions were conducted via Caterpillar bulldozers. Um, Now, Caterpillar is a huge um, construction company, but it also advertised um, military uses and modifications of its bulldozers for military use on its site. And for years it had... um, constructive and actual notice of this collective punishment in the OPT of these crimes against humanity. They're just uh, crushing people to death in their homes. So unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit found that because the United States government, so this goes back to what you were saying, the um, collusion, the United States government financed the sale that it was a non-justiciable political question. And I have a huge problem with the political question doctrine. So it's meant to be um, a balance between this. So Montesquieu's checks and balances, the three different arms of government. But what I, I'm seeing is that in many cases, the judiciary is simply abdicating its own responsibility, denying justice based on this um, political question doctrine. So could you explain a little more to our audience about the issues in this particular case and also how the political question doctrine is used to deny justice in so many cases where it's needed? Right, right. So we, you know, after Rachel Corey was killed and there was a, you know, Israel was increasing, increasingly demolishing homes. They were, you know, massive in military incursions into the West Bank and Gaza. They were creating buffer zones to build the wall, including in Rafa, where Rachel was. Um, Rachel was killed. Several Palestinian families had been killed when they were inside their homes, when they were demolished on top of them without notice. Um, and, and family members had been killed or injured. So as you said, yeah, Cat, Caterpillar had been selling bulldozers to Israel since 1967. And, you know, tens of thousands of, of homes, Palestinian homes had been destroyed um, using Caterpillar bulldozers. And they had had notice. People had let them know. People wrote them letters directly saying, your bulldozers are being used to unlawfully demolish homes. 
in the occupied Palestinian territory. And so we brought a case alleging that Caterpillar was aiding and abetting war crimes um, by selling the bulldozers to the, you know, to the Israeli Defense Forces, knowing they would be used to unlawfully demolish homes. And these were the the huge D9 and D10 bulldozers. So, and the U.S. government, this was when we were in the Ninth Circuit, in a case brought in part by a U.S. citizen killed by Israel, said, actually, we pay for the bulldozers at issue. So if you hold Caterpillar accountable, that would interfere with our foreign policy. So it should be dismissed on political question grounds. And as you said, these, you know, it's basically a separation of powers doctrine. So the political question doctrine is essentially a separation of powers doctrine, whereby the judiciary only decides legal questions. It shouldn't decide political questions that the executive should decide or the legislature should decide. Um, But here the U.S. government came in and said, because we pay for the bulldozers, the case should be dismissed. It should be our decision to make. This interferes with our foreign policy. So the court did it. The court dismissed on political question grounds. Um, all right. And this was in a you know in a clear case of of caterpillar aiding and abetting war crimes, um, and we've had other cases dismissed like that where the U.S. government can't comes in either arguing political question or arguing that foreign Israeli officials should be immune. So and then the court says, okay, if the U.S. government says they're immune, they're immune. Right, even though. Um with respect to derivative immunity for corporations that can claim license uh, from the federal government or some other allowance. But mm-hmm. if it's used Kogan's, then there should really be no immunity because um, the U.S. government can't do something legally against international law. But you just said something about immunity with with respect to mm-hmm. um, foreign officials. So you were counsel on an ATS and TVPA claim against the former Shin Bet director, Dichter, who uh, directed the dropping of a one-ton bomb on an apartment building and not just in on mm-hmm. any apartment building, but mm-hmm. an apartment building in the most densely populated place in the world. And this was purportedly meant to be a targeted assassination of a terrorist leader But what ended up happening when you drop a one-ton bomb in such a populated area at midnight is that you kill numerous civilians, including uh, children. Right. Unfortunately, the Second Circuit dismissed liability for the war crime because exactly what you said, the U.S. government stepped in and they... um, they asserted that Dicta had immunity. But here's the thing. Dicta wasn't actually a foreign official at the time. He had long mm-hmm. gone. So why would he have immunity? I mean, surely such an act is not within his position. And that's such a clear violation of international law. Yeah. So we brought this case with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, um, which is based in Gaza and was seeking accountability for this you know, war crime in any country where it might be possible, including, you know, European countries, New Zealand, the U.S., even, you know, this attack, even the White House under George W. Bush had condemned the attack at the time. Um, So we brought this case, 
you know, alleging war crimes and crimes against humanity and extrajudicial killing against Avi Dichter. Um, and he moved to dismiss the case and submitted a letter from the ambassador of Israel to the Department of State saying, this case challenges sovereign acts of Israel. Anything defendant did was in the course of his official duties, so he should be immune. And then the U.S. government submits a statement of interest and says he should have immunity for all official acts unless the state of Israel waives the immunity or unless the U.S. government decides there's no immunity. Um, and we, you know, the other interesting thing that they did at the time was they basically said they warned against similar misuse of legal venues um, in other countries. We need to be able to protect U.S. officials because they could be denied immunity in lawsuits abroad if you don't accept immunity here. And at the mm. time, CCR had a case against Rumsfeld and others in Germany for torture in Iraq. So basically it was, you know, the elite war criminals protecting each other. <laughs> um, we argued, just like you said, there's no common law immunity for official acts. This, you know, he's not in office. He no longer has any immunity by function of being in office, and he doesn't have immunity for being for having acted officially, and he certainly has no immunity for violations of Jus Corbin's norms. Um, so, and even if there were, the Torture Victim Protection Act, which was passed by Congress, overrides any such immunity. Um, but the Second Circuit agreed with the state, you know, with the government again, and said there is immunity here. I mean, again, it's just an example of the U.S. going to bat for for Israel and for itself. Yeah, there's not like a rainbow history um, when you look at uh, U.S. Mm -hmm. foreign policy, unfortunately. And, and it right. continues um, to this day, even though we're purportedly pro-human rights, but then we go to bed with Saudi Arabia, right. um, which isn't right. exactly... Right. <laughs> A place where right. <laughs> everyone's holding hands and and um, everyone's accepted. Yeah. So um, we've talked about the apartheid that exists in um, the occupied territories and actually even within Israel. Um, but uh, you were involved in a case um, with respect to the South African apartheid regime, and that was also in part... Um, thankfully uh, destroyed by pressure from the international community and a boycott. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, CCR had filed an amicus brief in an ATS litigation against American corporations that were aiding and abetting the South African apartheid regime, um, even helping the operations of uh, BOSS, which was the um, basically the Gestapo of the South African mm -hmm. apartheid regime. So... Unfortunately, this case was ultimately dismissed in extraterritoriality, and this doctrine has been applied so many times in ATS cases to and, and severely whittled um, the power of uh, ATS. Unfortunately, how how has this doctrine um, been applied? Because and and what is this the purpose of extraterritoriality? Because as I understand it, we don't want to meddle in other countries. I mean, which we do all the time, but um, purportedly, right, right. you know, we don't want to meddle in other countries, which I understand. But these are our domestic corporations, surely there's no foreign problem right. with t taking our domestic corporations to account and saying, hey, you cannot commit human rights abuses overseas because we don't like that. I mean, surely that doesn't yeah. meddle with uh, foreign interests. Right. So 
the CCR actually pioneered the use of the Alien Tort Statute in the 70s to hold people accountable for international law violations, no matter where they occurred um, and no matter who committed them and against whom. So, you know, we brought a long line of cases um, that would hold people accountable, especially when foreign officials, dictators would come to the United States, sometimes seeking refuge, um, and we would bring cases representing, you know, victims of theirs from foreign countries. And that, um, you know, that was actually affirmed in the early, in 2004 in a case called Sosa v. Alvarez Machine, which affirmed this line of cases and permitted ATS claims for violations of international law norms, as long as they were definite and universal and obligatory. So that, you know, started to change when we were going after corporations. <laughs> so um, in, in a case um, brought against Royal Dutch Shell, the Supreme Court said, okay, the ATS, it, there's a presumption that it does not apply extraterritorially. And it has to, the claim has to touch and concern the United States with sufficient force to displace that presumption. Um, and then there's since been another case, one against Nestle, that basically said, okay, general corporate activity isn't sufficient. You need more of a nexus between the conduct that's domestic and the cause of action in the case. So it's just, you know, it continues to be whittled away, um, basically to protect U.S. corporations. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it's quite unfortunate. Um, there are other ways to hold corporations accountable, yeah. um, but, but not, you know, it's harder and harder to do it under the Alien Tort Statute. Mm. But we do have a case, yeah. Al-Shamari, that is... Um, that is currently in a Virginia federal court um, going after Khaki for torture at Abu Ghraib. And that is moving forward um, because it did, there was sufficient contact. And so we'll see, we're still waiting on a decision decision in that case. Right. That's um, in the fourth but circuit. It is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also you did have a settlement against Shell um, when you worked on behalf of Nigerian environmental defenders who were protesting the poisoning, actually, it's ecocide. What ha, what Shell is doing in the Nigerian Delta mm-hmm. and what, what Shell has been doing is ecocide. So Shell was complicit in the allegations made that were false, that environmental defenders who were a grave inconvenience to Shell were somehow um, murderers and then they were summarily executed. Um, Shell was complicit in their... Um, execution and it took 13 years of litigation but you managed to Mm -hmm. get Mm -hmm. a settlement so i mean that's good news right yeah that was that was a success that was before you know kiobel one of the supreme court cases um that actually whittled away at the ats was a companion case to this case this wewa case and we settled it before that happened so it was it was you know it was a success it it settled for a total of $15.5 $15.5 million, which, you know, was, was something to these plaintiffs, although, you know, maybe not much to shell. And it actually established a trust intended to benefit the Agoni people. Um, 
So, and it, it was some measure of acknowledgement at the time. Um, it was, you know, there were a lot, it wasn't just the families of the Agoni nine and the families of the people who were killed protesting, um, who were plaintiffs in the case, but it was also, you know, all of Agoni who suffered, um, from shell. And this was some acknowledgement of that, even if it wasn't an explicit acknowledgement, it was at least something. Mm. There is increasing pressure in this country to chill speech, to stop informed debate. And part of this pressure is not only against environmental defenders, but also people that want to speak up for Palestinian human rights and the continuing crimes against humanity that are happening in the OPT. And this is an issue that is not just the canary in the coal mine about freedom of speech in this country, but also goes to the problem that if you speak up for Palestinian rights, why are you taken as supporting terrorism or anti-Semitic? There's many organizations, many people in Israel are fighting their regime that are in the streets every day, understanding that Netanyahu, this political Lazarus, is trying to just stamp out democracy in the OPT and within Israel. And how do we bridge that gap? How do we get people together Mm -hmm. to see that we're supporting human rights for everybody. Right. Right. I mean, I think the first thing is, is first of all, you know, acknowledging and letting people know that these smear campaigns and these legal attacks are intended to silence us. And they're intended to silence us because there's not a legitimate other side of the debate. You know, you can't, justify displacing and detaining and killing Palestinians and continuing to construct Jewish-only settlements and continuing to occupy Palestine and continue to have an apartheid regime. So we must not be chilled. You know, we need to speak out for Palestinian freedom and we need to make the connection between what's happening in Palestine and the and what's happening here. And we need to turn these, you know, what otherwise is a distraction from the human rights advocacy into an opportunity to put a spotlight on Israel's repression. Um, so we need to not only demand that Israel stop these things and, and you know, permit Palestinians to be, you know, to have self-determination and to have equality, but we also need to pressure the U.S. government to, to stop its unconditional aid and to stop its support. And then we need to, and then we need to get the state governments that are passing all these laws to understand that, you know, that their role in supporting Israel and use the anti-BDS laws as an opportunity to, to educate the legislators. You know, the legislators might not even know what they're doing when they're passing these laws, um, but use it to tell them about Palestine and to tell them what's happening. And I think in that way, we can hopefully, um, you know, raise the awareness about what's happening in Palestine and about how our speech is being abridged so that just to silence one side of the debate, just to further the repression. Um, And also, I guess, in letting people know that, that this is just, you know, the, like you said, the canary in the coal mine, this is, you know, once, once these, rights are a bridge, so are all others. And, you know, and it's going to be, 
it's just going to escalate. Well, we can't talk about this. We can't talk about that. And, and those things are always going to be where power is threatened. Yeah. That's one thing we can do at least. Yeah. We, we have to, uh, (laughs) keep fighting and, uh, keep and fighting. I mean, by keep, uh, debating, keep fighting in court, keep litigating, keep supporting, uh, protesters. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Thank you very much for your time and uh, insight today, Maria. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Yes, great talking to you. Thank you. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.